Reports today say a top Russian general knew about the plans by the Wagner Group mercenary leader to rebel against Russia's president. Meanwhile, we'll find out about a major player in resolving the dispute between the group and the Russian state. That's coming up on this Wednesday, June 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Confederate General Braxton Bragg's name was recently stripped from the largest army base in the country. The name change has since become a presidential campaign talking point. And U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm is driving through the southeast to promote President Biden's support for clean energy. This is the new battery belt. This is where people will be working to build electric vehicles. Y'all should feel so proud that that is happening here. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Wildfire smoke wafting down from Canada is contributing to very poor air quality in the United States today. A haze has settled over multiple states from the Midwest to the south and points east, where extreme heat is also brewing unhealthy air for millions of people. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports. Residents of Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh and other cities are facing unhealthy air quality levels as wildfire smoke blankets the region. The National Weather Service says similar conditions could continue for a couple of days. Canada has been experiencing its most destructive wildfire season on record and authorities there have been struggling to contain hundreds of blazes across the country. Experts say people in areas with poor air quality should try to remain indoors as much as possible, wear an N95 mask or similar respirator outside, and avoid strenuous activity. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. The air quality issues in Chicago did not stop President Biden from delivering a major speech today on his economic policy that the White House is now dubbing Bidenomics. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the Democrat stop in Chicago was part of a weeks-long economic tour across the country by administration officials. Biden touted the country's economic growth since the COVID-19 pandemic and criticized old policies of trickle-down economics, which focused on tax cuts for corporations and the wealthy. The trickle-down approach failed the middle class. It failed America. It blew up the deficit. It increased inequity and it weakened the, our infrastructure. Biden's agenda, he says, is about investing in the middle class. The latest push from the White House comes as Biden's approval ratings on the economy remain low. In an NPR PBS Marist poll from March, just 38 percent of Americans say they approve of how the president is handling the economy. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Actor Kevin Spacey's sexual assault trial in Britain has begun. Villa Marx has the latest. The double Oscar winner had previously pleaded not guilty to a dozen charges involving allegations of sexual assault and indecent assault against four men. The judge warned jurors to, quote, avoid media coverage of the trial, with charges dating from 2001 to 2013. During much of that period, Spacey was the artistic director of London's Old Vic Theatre Company. Villa Marx reporting. A 24-year-old Marine veteran who put a subway rider in a deadly chokehold last month in New York City has pleaded not guilty. Daniel Penny was arraigned today on charges of second-degree manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide for killing Jordan Neely. Penny maintains he did what he did because Neely was a threat to other passengers. According to police, witnesses said Neely was acting erratically and was shouting at other passengers, but that there was no indication that he physically confronted anyone. From Washington, this is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The closure of the Sunner Tunnel in Boston is exactly one week away. And today the state announced a new public service campaign called Ditch the Drive. It's to help people work around the eight-week shutdown. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports commuters from the north will experience the worst delays while the tunnel is being renovated. Repair work on the tunnel starts July 5th. Jonathan Gulliver from the State Department of Transportation says traffic might seem lighter at first because people may be out of town. But... July 10th, when holiday traffic returns, is when things are especially going to be difficult. Gulliver says drivers should consider alternatives. And uh, the fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. The MBTA Blue Line and the East Boston Ferry will be free during the shutdown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. You can find tips on how to get around the Sumner Tunnel closure at WBUR.org. Beacon Hill lawmakers are considering requests to double the deposit on bottles. Supporters say a 10-cent deposit would help encourage more recycling. The 5-cent deposit was set 40 years ago when the so-called bottle bill became law. The Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy is also reviewing a measure to add more types of containers that would require deposits, including water bottles. A report from the Container Recycling Institute last year found that Massachusetts has the lowest rate of people returning empty bottles and cans among the 10 states that have bottle bills. Debris from the submersible Titan that imploded on its way to view the wreck of the Titanic is being recovered. The Canadian Coast Guard says the discovery was made by a remotely operated vehicle owned by a Cape Cod company. The debris will be analyzed. All five people on board the Titan were killed when the vehicle imploded. 80 degrees now in the Boston area. Lots of gray out there right now. Showers, maybe some thunderstorms overnight tonight. Temperatures about 66 for a low. And for tomorrow, could have showers mainly in the afternoon. Partly sunny skies otherwise with a high near 81. 80 degrees in Boston at... 406. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We're continuing to track the fallout from last weekend's uprising of Wagner Group mercenaries against Russia's military leadership. But from what we know, a major player in resolving the dispute was Alexander Lukashenko, the strongman leader of Belarus. He's long had close ties with Russia and its leader, Vladimir Putin. NPR Moscow correspondent Charles Maines has been looking into Lukashenko's role, and he joins us on the line. Hi there. Hi there. So, Charles, both the Kremlin and the head of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, say the leader of neighboring Belarus was the key intermediary. So tell us, what was his role exactly? Well, Lukashenko says he was on the phone with Prigozhin and the Kremlin throughout the crisis. Uh, That allowed him to broker a deal by which Prigozhin agreed to pull back his forces in exchange for an amnesty deal for Prigozhin and his men uh, that includes Lukashenko hosting them in exile in Belarus. So that's the gist of the bargain that we know. Uh, Yet in a televised meeting with his generals yesterday, Lukashenko shared all sorts of juicy details. Uh, For example, uh, the Prigozhin spent the first half hour yelling obscenities into the phone. And also this one, Lukashenko talked Putin out of murdering Prigozhin outright. 
Lukashenko says he told Putin, okay, we can kill him, no problem, but it's a bad idea. And Lukashenko said there wouldn't be any negotiations and Wagner's fighters would strike back. And even though Russia would win in the end, uh, thousands of civilians would die. Now, now, it's hard to parse truth from false modesty here, uh, and Putin yesterday made clear the amnesty deal was his decision, uh, but no question about it, Lukashenko comes away looking like the cooler head in all of this. All sides are giving him credit for that. Okay, so that raises the question of why Lukashenko? What is the nature of his relationship with Putin? Well, Lukashenko has been the leader of Belarus for over two decades now, uh, yet in 2020, uh, Lukashenko's hold on power appeared under threat after he was accused of rigging elections. And when hundreds of thousands of Belarusians took to the streets in protest, it was Putin who came to Lukashenko's rescue, providing financial aid and at least the threat of additional Russian forces to suppress the uprising. So, so one way you could look at it is that these recent events, uh, Lukashenko is essentially repaying the favor. Yet I spoke with Yoheni Preyerman of the Minsk Dialogue Council, that's an international affairs think tank in the capital of Belarus, who said this was Lukashenko really protecting his own interests against the political opposition that fled Belarus in the 2020 crackdown, uh, but continued to hope for democratic change. And they were immediately saying that this whole situation creates a window of opportunity for us. So Lukashenko's exact interest was to ensure that no major destabilization happens in Russia because had that happened, a window of opportunity for the opposition would indeed have emerged. And Charles, I mean, Belarus is or is certainly one of Russia's closest allies. What role has the country played in the war in Ukraine? You know, ever since 2020, Lukashenko has been beholden to Putin for that help, and it's chipped away at Belarus's sovereignty. It, it's turned it into a client state of Russia's. And Putin since has been pushing for a long-stalled union state between the two countries to take hold, with Belarus clearly the junior partner. Uh, and even though Belarus isn't formally part of the war in Ukraine, in the sense that soldiers aren't fighting, uh, the country is nonetheless clearly Russia's ally in the conflict. Uh, Russia used Belarus as a staging ground to invade Ukraine. It's also using Belarus now as a storage facility for its tactical nuclear weapons. And the question now is, with Wagner forces apparently setting, setting up shop in Belarus, are they there to serve Russia's interest, or perhaps could Wagner be of use to Lukashenko? Okay, well, what do we know so far? Well, you know, Lukashenko yesterday said Wagner mercenaries can use a military training facility in Belarus if they want to set up camp. Um, so, but yet we don't really know what their long-term plans are. And uh, meanwhile, uh, a bit of mystery here, a plane believed to belong to Prigozhin, which arrived in Minsk yesterday, was actually seen flying back to Russia today. So while we've had Lukashenko say Prigozhin is in Belarus, we haven't actually seen Prigozhin himself. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow, thank you. Thank you. How much do you tip? Where do you tip? Seems like everyone is talking about the spread of tipping, and it looks like customers might have reached a tipping point, as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. It is summer here in New York, and that means cold brew season. Can I get a cold brew, please? Yeah. Are you card or cash? A uh, card. Okay. But this year, the cold brew is not warming my heart like it usually does, because my 16-ounce cold brew costs five twenty-five. And that is before this moment. Uh, you can just tap right there in a moment. Tap right there. The barista turns the payment tablet towards me, and there are my tip options, starting at a dollar. It's nearly a 20% tip. My cold brew is now $6.25. Tipping. It is costing U.S. consumers a lot, and we are all up in our feelings about it. 
Social media is filled with people who are outraged, shocked, or just plain confused about tipping. The girl just now at Subway giving off bad vibes because I didn't tip. So do we tip at Subway? Is that a thing? Dude, tipping culture is out of control. Look at this. It's asking me to tip on freaking car parts, dude. I picked up a snack at one of the airport convenience stores and I used a self-checkout and I was asked to tip at least 20%. I don't wanna be the person that doesn't tip, but then who am I tipping? So how did we get here to the place where we're tipping 20% for airport Doritos? The pandemic hit us, right? Shobhanshu Singh is a professor at Johns Hopkins Business School. He says, during the pandemic, we started tipping people we didn't use to tip and we started tipping way more than usual as a way to support essential workers at a time of crisis. The pandemic went away, says Singh, but the tip expectations did not. At the same time, the technology around how we pay has been changing. And all of that combined to create that dreaded tap here moment, a.k.a. the dreaded screen turn. Now the screen turns and... That person who gave service to you is in front of you, and there is this social pressure. Social pressure. Sean Jung teaches hospitality administration at Boston University. He says this social pressure is a powerful and measurable economic force. The famous word for that is nudging. And if you have a system that kind of leads you to do something, it feels like a choice, but it isn't. Jung says the national average for tipping has been nudged up to almost 20 percent. And it's a lot higher in cities like New York, San Francisco and Boston. In my own opinion, I think it's getting a little out of hand. Out of hand, maybe, but people are making some serious money. Square, the company behind a lot of the electronic payment screens, gets a cut of each transaction, including tip. So more tips mean more money. And even though customers are complaining, Businesses are not fighting it because of the third main driver of tipflation, the job market. A lot of people just didn't come back after the pandemic. Jung says restaurants, coffee shops, and other service businesses have been competing tooth and nail for workers, luring them in with better benefits, higher pay. At the same time, they are trying to keep their prices as low as possible. Tips are a way to increase worker pay without having to pay for it and raise prices. The wage they're receiving isn't sufficient enough. So everybody is using this very weird way to basically increase their wages while maintaining the same menu price. But it seems like tip exhaustion might be setting in. A survey from Bankrate found that two-thirds of customers now have a negative view of tipping. And this year, tips are down nearly 10% for restaurant servers. But even if tipflation starts to reverse course, don't expect to pay less. If tipping goes away, Jung says, companies will need to raise workers' wages. And they'll pay for that by raising prices or by adding fees, like a service fee, or like the 50-cent special milk fee I paid. What kind of milk? Just whole milk? Uh, can I get like an oat milk or something? Yeah, of course. Grand total for my cold brew, by the way, $7.53. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. So, all right, I've got to say, it is hot outside. Ugh, try riding your bike in a suit. 
and we don't even have the worst of it. Just south of here in Washington, D.C., places in the U.S. are under heat advisories as temperatures break 100 degrees. Millions of people are facing dangerous, extreme heat. Yeah, I mean, we had some good tips on the show yesterday for staying safe and comfortable in heat like that, some of which may feel kind of obvious, like staying as cool as possible by hydrating and trying not to run around too much. Yeah, but there's one thing we didn't mention, which is... Spluting. Spluting. That is a very silly word for a pretty cool strategy, something animals do more than humans. Walk around on a hot day and you actually might see a squirrel spluting. I think it's called spluting because that is kind of what it looks like. It's like if a squirrel just like splatted down on the pavement, all of its limbs are splayed. So it's kind of like spread eagles on the ground. That's animal physiologist Andrea Rummel. When humans are hot, sweating cools us down, but she says animals that can't sweat have to resort to other behaviors to cool off. The squirrels are trying to regulate their body temperatures by spreading out on a cool surface. Think of it like finding the cool part of the pillow when you're trying to fall asleep. And it's not just squirrels that sploot. Dogs, raccoons, bears, all kinds of animals will do it if they are overheating. Carlos Botero, an associate professor of biology at the University of Texas at Austin, says that while it might look kind of cute, it's actually a sign that they're under a lot of stress. The temperatures that we're experiencing right now are a little bit beyond the typical ability of this of this animals to withstand. And climate change is making things even harder for squirrels. These extreme conditions are becoming more and more common, so until somehow the physiology of squirrels gets adapted to the new normal, they will have to do this extra behavior to try to cool themselves off. The animal physiologist Rummel says spluting is enough to keep the squirrels cool for now, but... For every kind of thermoregulatory mechanism, there is a point at which it doesn't work anymore, and that depends on environmental temperature. So it's going to get harder and harder for squirrels to splute effectively as temperatures rise. So if you're experiencing some of these extreme temperatures, keep your eye out for spluting squirrels, then head inside ASAP for some ice water and AC. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, checking Wall Street numbers, ups and downs today on the street. The Dow lost about a quarter of a percent, S&P lost a small fraction, and the Nasdaq gained about a quarter of a percent. A report on home ownership finds more Black and Latino people in Massachusetts receive mortgages in 2021 than at any other time in the last three decades. The Partnership for Financial Equity says the most recent available date data showed the number of homes purchased by Blacks and Latinos were at a record high. The researchers say there are still disparities, though, especially in wealthier communities. And a report from the American Council for an Energy-Efficient Economy says Massachusetts is among the top states in offering incentives for electric vehicles and creating more charging stations. Massachusetts ranked the fourth best. The state has a goal of achieving net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. It's now 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to wbur.org newsletters. 80 degrees in the Boston area. Still pretty sticky out there today. 
Some sunshine breaking through the cloud cover. Clouds eventually overnight tonight. Could have some showers, especially before 10 o'clock tonight. Temperatures around 66 degrees. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, but a lot of clouds around too, with a chance of showers sometime in the afternoon. Highs near 81 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Hollywood writers' strike is going into its third month, and there's a looming possibility that actors may also go on strike soon. Upcoming films and series are being delayed, if not outright canceled, and many productions have ground to a halt. To survey the shows and stories not coming soon to a screen near you, NPR's Mandalit Del Barco is with us. She's been covering the strike. Hey, Mandalit. Hey there. Which projects have been called off so far? Well, one of the most high-profile productions we will not be seeing is a new adaptation of the classic Fritz Lang sci-fi film Metropolis. Apple TV Plus reportedly scrapped director Sam Ismail's passion project. It was in the works for many years, and it was actually... Uh, about to begin filming this summer. Um, you know, until the writer's strike ends, there will not be shooting for uh, the next season of Paramount Plus's Yellowstone prequel, 1923, with Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. And production of the Batman spinoff series, The Penguin, has been halted, even though Max already released a teaser trailer. The world ain't built for guys like us. That's why we got to take whatever we decide as ours. Joining the Penguin in delaying production are the next seasons of Severance, Abbott Elementary, Euphoria, and The Last of Us, the sixth season of Cobra Kai, and the final season of Stranger Things. I guess right now the world really ain't built for guys like them. Uh, (laughs) But there are still some new shows and films coming out this summer, so there's an inventory. How long is the pipeline going to last? Well, you know, there's no telling how long the writer's strike will go on. Some are talking about it may- ending maybe in September. Um, but, you know, Ari, another factor to keep in mind is that the actors are possibly going to be going on strike, even though the leaders of their union sag after assured them negotiations are going well. This week, more than 300 actors, including Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, Quinta Brunson, they all signed a letter saying they're ready to strike, if that's what it takes to secure the best deal possible. Their current contract with the studios and streamers ends on Friday. So in terms of any new or upcoming shows, nothing's going to be happening before the actors and the writers' demands get resolved one way or another. But, you know, I should add that many of NPR's employees are members of SAG-AFTRA, even though we're covered by a different contract. And uh, so if If there is a strike, uh, we won't be on strike. There are big marketing events and an award season coming up, Comic-Con, the Emmys. How are things like that being affected? 
Well, let's start with Comic-Con, Comic-Con International in San Diego. Usually every year, the the Hollywood studios host big, splashy, filled-to-capacity presentations of their upcoming movies. But this year, Marvel and Disney are not making any presentations at Comic-Con. Neither are Netflix, Sony, or Universal. We'll have to see what, if anything, Warner Brothers does. And as for the Emmy Awards, those nominations are going to be announced next week. And they were set to air in September, but they could be delayed for months, and the Organizers are reportedly discussing various contingency plans if the writer's strike isn't resolved this summer. And the impact here goes beyond big Hollywood events and sets, right? That's right. Well, you know, I I heard from Film LA, which handles permits for film shoots on city streets and other locations, and they say there were only two scripted TV series shooting or filming in Los Angeles this week. Normally at this time of the year, there would be dozens of TV projects and and, uh, production. And here in LA, the shutdown impacts so many people, all the film crews and every business that relies on the Hollywood economy, according to the Milken Institute. The 2008 writer's strike, which lasted 100 days, cost the L.A. economy more than $2 billion. That is NPR's Mandalit Del Barco. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. For decades, the citizens of Lebanon have known hard times from civil war to economic collapse. Today, for our weekly Dose of Wonder series, reporter Ari Daniel introduces us to one shop owner who, despite the tumult, manages to keep on conjuring delight. (laughs) On a warm spring morning, I stand inside a pastry shop in the mountains of central Lebanon. It's called Shea Nassim, after the owner, Nassim Haddad. After 40 years, Shea Nassim has become a big name. Come and have a look. He takes me behind the counter. A fragrance of sugar and rose wafts over me. Oh, it smells so good back here. Sweet, yeah. I pass baklava, green pistachios, and rose petal jam. Now, Haddad's no stranger to me. He's my wife's cousin. We moved to Lebanon last fall, and there's something special about the guy. I just love being around him. He guides me to the end of the shop to a tray of knefe, a warm cheese between buttery dough. Knefe, every five minutes I will eat knefe. (laughs) <laughs> you want to taste? No, no, I'm good, I'm good. I just brushed my teeth, I'm good. Yeah. Look at, try it. Forget about your teeth. Eat. Haddad's 79 years old. His first name, Nassim, it means breeze, an apt description. He's light, refreshing, and I marvel at his ability to float above decades of turmoil. It's kind of wondrous, actually. I was born laughing. I am always laughing. Even during the hardest times. For instance, when the Civil War broke out here in 1975, Haddad was running three restaurants. One day, he drove to the one just outside Beirut with his wife, and it was gone. No buildings, there's nothing. Nothing but rubble. The war was a sectarian conflict that killed tens of thousands and leveled buildings. Haddad's restaurant was one of the casualties. And they put a bomb, boom. My wife was crying. I was laughing. You thought it was funny? Yeah. This life, forget it. Still, it wasn't an easy time. His other restaurants got hit too. His home was burned down. Me and my wife and my daughter, we don't have nothing. No car, no house, no work, no money, nothing. Haddad stared down all that loss and said to himself, I start again. I don't afraid from anything. I am a hero. 
When the war ended in 1990, he opened a new restaurant in Beirut called Place de l'Etoile. It filled quickly with politicians, journalists, ministers, bodyguards. One day, Lebanon's prime minister, Rafiq Hariri, walked in. He wanted to meet the owner. Haddad introduced himself. <laughs> he kissing me. He tell me, you are a good man. We are repairing Beirut, but you open Beirut. I will come here every day, he told Haddad, and so he did. Valentine's Day 2005 was no exception. By then, Hariri was a member of parliament. After one hour, he left. Two, three minutes, boom. It was a big explosion. The windows shattered and the restaurant filled with dust. Haddad soon learned what had happened. That is no Hariri. He'd been assassinated by a truck bomb. Minutes after finishing a coffee, Haddad says, at his restaurant. Everybody feels sad. I believe after Hariri, Lebanon is finished. But after that, the life is continuing. What can we do? Haddad sold that restaurant and spent more time here at his pastry shop in the mountains. And even though Lebanon's troubles have continued, the port explosion in 2020, the recent collapse of the banking sector, Shay Nassim remains strong, as does he. I have my family. We are happy. Yesterday, I drank two bottles of white wine with a good friend. In Lebanon, you don't have tomorrow. Which means, says Haddad, that each day he decides to savor every minute. You have to be happy. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR and intimate at intimate indoor events, President Biden's comments sometimes go beyond what he says in public. What we're not hearing, but what donors are, coming up. In the forecast, the usual mix today, some sunshine, some foreboding clouds, and some showers thrown in, and then the sunshine again. Could have showers with a rumble of thunder overnight tonight, falling to about 66 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds and sunshine taking turns again, just about 80 degrees. Friday should have mainly sunny skies at long last. Much of the southern part of the U.S. is under a heat advisory, and in Texas, the heat is taxing the power grid. The realities of climate change, along with all the day's news, are here this afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. Thanks so much for listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. The Whole Hog Barbecue is the original style of American barbecue. It's a tradition deeply rooted in indigenous and black history. For much of barbecue's history, that work fell upon enslaved Africans and the later enslaved African-Americans. We'll talk about barbecue's history and black America's complicated relationship with food and hospitality with pitmaster Ryan Mitchell. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden touted his handling of the economy today during a speech in Chicago, as a new poll shows that just 34 percent of U.S. adults approve of his performance on the economy. Biden says his administration's efforts are sparking recovery after Republican tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations crushed the middle class. 
Biden says he believes the U.S. will avoid the recession that many economic analysts have been expecting. Inflation is less than half, less than half of what it was a year ago. And that inflation caused by Russia and by the war in Ukraine and by what's going on. But we knew we had to do more. There's more than one way to bring down costs. Biden is hoping voters connect his administration's initiatives over the past two years to local roads and bridge projects, as well as new factory construction and renewable energy initiatives. Legal analysts say more lawsuits are possible after the Supreme Court yesterday ruled on state courts and their power to review congressional redistricting maps, as well as rules for federal elections. NPR's Hansi Luong explains. The most extreme version of a once-fringe idea known as the independent state legislature theory has been rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court. But the high court's majority says there is an undefined limit to what state courts can do in cases about how state legislatures have decided to run congressional elections. Jason Torchinsky, an attorney for the National Republican Redistricting Trust, says there will likely be a push for the justices to define that limit. The bottom line is additional cases are coming that bring up this issue. But other Supreme Court watchers say the majority of justices do not seem eager to lay out what state courts cannot do about federal elections. Hansi Luong, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today after comments from the Fed chair about inflation and the likelihood of more interest rates this year. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard Medical School is now facing a second class action lawsuit. The new suit was filed today on behalf of three family members who say the remains of their family members were mishandled on the school's morgue. The morgue's former manager is facing federal criminal charges. Prosecutors say he sold body parts from cadavers that were intended for education and research. The Suffolk County DA believes forensic evidence against a New Jersey lawyer who's charged with additional sexual assault charges will be admissible in court. The grand jury this week indicted Matthew Nilo in five additional attacks on women when he lived in Boston more than 15 years ago. DA Kevin Hayden says he's confident in the DNA evidence. It's an important advance in testing and genealogical testing and DNA evidence and also uh, in our efforts, in our law enforcement efforts to really crack these cold cases and make a difference. And we're very glad to be able to hold these people accountable after such a long period of time and, and try to bring justice for these victims. Nilo's next court appearance will be in July. He is free on bail after he was arraigned on the initial charge earlier this month. There's a new push to warn motorists about the impending shutdown of the Sumner Tunnel in Boston. Today, state transportation leaders and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu talked about the impact on traffic when the Sumner closes next Wednesday for two months of renovations. State Highway Commissioner Jonathan Gulliver says the Blue Line will be a free alternative. Fares will be reduced on the commuter rail. We are very confident in our plan. We have put a lot of work into this, and we really want this to be a successful and manageable project. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the two-month shutdown will allow the major repairs to move forward on the aging tunnel. We know how disruptive this is, but this is the only way to get us where we deserve to be. Traffic will be detoured to the Tobin Bridge and the Ted Williams Tunnel. The worst traffic is expected to be on Monday, July 10th. That will be the first workday following the July 4th holiday week. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C.
clouds mixed in with sunshine this afternoon. Camera lot showers from time to time. Overnight tonight, lots of clouds down around the mid-60s. Tomorrow, partly sunny again around 80 tops. And it is 80 degrees in Boston now at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant online research databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. More at ebsco.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Biden administration has big ambitions for a switch to green energy. The U.S. Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, is on the road now making the case for it. She is driving through the southeastern United States on what she's calling the, quote, people-powered summer road trip. And NPR's Camila Dominoski is along for the ride and joins us now. Hey, Camila. Hi, Juana. Hi from the back seat of this Chevy Bolt. So where are you right now and what is this trip all about? Yeah, so I am with a group of vehicles that's traveling with the Secretary of Energy. She is in a Cadillac Lyric, which is a different, a very nice electric vehicle. Uh, we are going from Atlanta to Chattanooga. So we are on our way. This trip has gone from Charlotte, North Carolina. It's going through multiple states. It's all about bringing attention to these billions of dollars in funding that the Biden administration is spending for clean energy, for electric vehicle chargers, for the batteries that go into electric vehicles. And why these states, a lot of it has to do with all of this, these manufacturing projects that are coming to this area. Some people are calling it the battery belt. Mm. Here's one of the things that the Secretary of Energy said at a town hall in South Carolina. This is where people will be working to build electric vehicles to clean up our transportation system. Y'all should feel so proud that that is happening here, right? So we've stopped at churches, college campuses, union halls, research labs and factories, um, all, all about this, this push towards clean energy. So you pointed out that this is a road trip you are taking in electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. How is that going so far? Yeah, well, some parts went exactly according to plan, charging at the hotels and parking lots. That was really smooth. You are leading me to believe that there are some parts <laughs> of this that were not quite as smooth the best laid plans. I mean, anyone who's driven electric vehicles on road trips, especially if you're not in a Tesla, is familiar with this experience. Yesterday, we stopped at a fast charger where one of the chargers was broken, right? Another one was actually being used by an electric school bus that was on a road show, which was pretty cool. Um, but there were more people who wanted to charge than there were chargers. And one person who was waiting actually called the cops about a non-electric vehicle that was trying to hold a spot for the Secretary of Energy. Turns out that's that's not a crime, the cops said who showed up. Um, but it is a real frustration, and it just speaks to the challenges the existing infrastructure poses to people with electric vehicles. And then another car pulled up. He couldn't charge either. And that driver, John Ryan, he said, yeah, this is just totally normal. Just par for the course. I mean, they'll get it together at some point, I guess. And the they who will get it together, I mean, that obviously includes people like the Secretary of Energy, who was right there. And Ryan knew exactly what he wanted from her, more chargers. But if they can get more of them, that'd be great. I mean, it's just a sign of how far the country still has to go in terms of rolling out this infrastructure. Okay, echoing John Ryan here, what is being done to get more chargers on the road? 
Well, federally, there's $7.5 billion in funding going out. States, some of them, especially California, New York, Colorado, a report just came out from an re energy research group. Some of them are trying. It's not everyone. Um, but, but there's money rolling out. There are chargers planned. But all those things you just listed, Camila, that sounds like it's going to take some time, right? Yeah, that's a theme of the trip. You know, we visited sites that had plans for improving uh, transmission lines and a lithium mine that's going to be a mine again, but right now it sort of looks like a pond. There's these rebates that will be available in the fall, but they're not available yet. These are things that are happening, but they're, they're not actually visible if you're trying to see if you can afford an EV or find a charger or buy new appliances today. NPR's Camila Dominoski on a road trip with U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm. Thanks so much. Thank you. The Zaporizhia region in southern Ukraine is now an active front line in the country's counteroffensive to push Russians out of occupied territory. In the 16th century, it was also run by warriors beating back invaders, including Russian czars. Those warriors are now revered, but they made a compromise that Ukrainians vow never to repeat. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports. Hortitsa is a lush, wild island where horses run free. It's on the Dnipro River, just outside the southern city of Zaporizhia. Inside a thatched hut near an animal refuge, I meet Yuri Kopyshinsky, a tall grandfather with a shaved head and a linebacker's build. He calls Hortitsa home. It was once the headquarters of his ancestors, the Zaporizhian Cossacks. We, the Zaporizhian Cossacks, defended the people who lived in this particular area. And you have to think of like the history of the Cossacks who were de facto border guards. He says they defended their land against invaders, including Muscovite princes. And they took a blood oath before battle. So you have to understand that when you fight as brothers, you fight in a completely different way. Kopyshinsky takes us to the edge of the island, to a fenced-in complex overlooking the river. For the last 20 years, he has trained locals and foreigners here to fight like the Zaporizhian Cossacks. One of his best students is Andriy Lazavi, a cheery hulk with a drooping mustache and long osaletets, a traditional Cossack ponytail on top of his mostly shaved head. It's a hairstyle I've seen all over Ukraine, even on women. Lazavi calls it the haircut of champions. Every adult, every child wants a hairstyle like that, so we can look like our heroes. Lazavi opens the gate to take us inside the fenced-in complex, which is lined with old wooden houses that look like they came out of a Renaissance fair. This is the reconstruction of a Kozak siege, or a military administrative center. There's a church, some homes, a museum. Lozavi disappears into the museum and returns with weapons. Just, just step aside, please. The sound of that whoosh, whoosh, whoosh is Andri swinging a big, heavy sword around. Now he's got two in his hand. He's also got a couple of axes, and he can fight on horseback. Whether we use horses and swords or howitzers and HIMARS, it all goes back to the same Cossack spirit to defend our land. Lozavi says he's been rejected for military service because of multiple bone fractures he suffered falling off horses. Kopashinsky's other student warriors 
are all on the front line, and they're fighting other Cossacks who live in Russia and support Moscow. The Russian Cossacks were nothing but servants, and all they did was ever submit to the Tsar. The Zaporizhian Cossacks never submitted to anybody. Except this one time, he says, and it was a terrible mistake. More than 450 years ago, the Zaporizhian Cossacks signed a treaty with Moscow for military protection. The Russian Empire grew, and Cossacks in other regions pledged their loyalty to the Tsars. The Zaporizhian Cossacks held out until Catherine the Great, one of the Russian Empire's most formidable leaders, disbanded them in 1775. But today, Kaczynski says, the Russians are weak. And the Zaporizhian Cossacks, he says, are fighting again. Joanna Kagesis, NPR News, Hortitsa, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healey has given drivers around Houston, Texas and Orlando, Florida, something she hopes will catch their eye. The administration has put up six digital billboards in each state. They carry a message of inclusiveness. The billboards read, Massachusetts for us all, and feature LGBTQ couples from the Bay State. Texas and Florida are actively restricting LGBTQ rights. The campaign costs $750,000. It includes billboards in New York and New England as well. Governor Healy is on an official trip to Ireland this week, a country that legalized homosexuality 30 years ago this month. She told us from Ireland this afternoon that the campaign is partly about attracting businesses to the Bay State. So we decided on this campaign, and we're proud of it. It's really about promoting Massachusetts as a state that's welcoming and and safe for everyone. Well, you say it's part of uh, creating a competitive business climate. The messages seem very individually oriented, and they don't seem to be reaching out to even LGBTQ-owned businesses. So that would lead one to think that there's also a bit of skewering going on here of two governors from right-wing persuasions who have made a point of skewering Massachusetts, in fact, for its democratic politics, especially on LGBTQ issues and on immigration. To what extent is that a part of it, kind of thumbing your nose? It's, no, it's it's not a part of that. And frankly, as somebody who spent a lot of time over many years advocating for LGBTQ plus equality and litigating cases around access to, to abortion and reproductive freedom, you know, I will tell you what this is about. There are a lot of people out there across this country who look to and rely on certain protections, the ability to to access contraception safely, the ability to access medication abortion, the ability to, to live and go to work and go to school in a place free of discrimination and bigotry. And I think it's important that we as a state market that and be clear to other parts of the country that they can come to Massachusetts to grow a family, to start a business, to grow a business, and to live a life with, you know, the fullness of opportunity that right now isn't happening in some other parts of of the country. I imagine there are other people who think that this is kind of a jab at Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott, governor of Texas. I wonder how you are going to measure 
the return on investment in this. So it's costing the Commonwealth three quarters of a million dollars. How will you know if it's working beyond those who think, oh, it's a good thumbing of the nose? How are you going to measure it? Well, I think what we'll see, uh, hopefully, is more people moving to Massachusetts, students deciding to go to school in Massachusetts, employers looking to source talent in Massachusetts. I think you'll be able to, to tell by the movement and in migration into our state and, frankly, other states as well that provide access to health care, access to medication abortion, protection of voting rights, protection of civil rights, protections of LGBTQ plus equality. You know, my point is simply like, look, you know, if you are in a place that does not protect health care, that does not protect access to abortion, that does not protect civil rights, does not protect our LGBTQ plus community, come to Massachusetts because we've got you covered. I want to just bring this back to where you are right now in Ireland. Uh, and this month, as you well know, marks the 30th anniversary of Ireland decriminalizing homosexuality. As you talk with education leaders, as I believe you did today, as you talk with business leaders, government leaders, how much of a role does inclusiveness and pride play in your conversations? Well, I think it's a significant part of Ireland and, and where it's at today. Massachusetts and Ireland have been on parallel journeys. Uh, both have established marriage equality and strong protections for LGBTQ plus people. Both Massachusetts and Ireland have protected reproductive health care and access to abortion. And part of what the Irish political leaders and also business leaders that I met with talk about is how helpful it has been to economic development and growth for Ireland that is a place that is welcoming and that is supportive and certain rights and freedoms are protected. And, you know, that's why I think it's an exciting time, I think, for both Massachusetts and for Ireland. Not even detecting a bit of a brogue. <laughs> Not a wee a, bit. It would take a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Governor Moore-Healy, thank you. Nice to talk to you. All right. Nice to talk to you, Lisa. Take care. Governor Healy speaking with us from Ireland this afternoon on the billboards Massachusetts is putting up, including in Florida and Texas, to encourage people to move here to the Bay State to take advantage of rights that are under threat in those two states. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. The usual mix of sunshine and clouds as soon as you turn your head. Something different is out there. Maybe some showers thrown in today. Overnight tonight, temperatures about 66 degrees. Tomorrow, showers and clouds again up around 80 degrees. Red Sox play game two of their three-game series with Miami Marlins tonight, 7:10 start time. WBUR supporters include Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Francis Ngannou holds the record for the world's strongest punch. But before finding a career in mixed martial arts, he endured hunger and homelessness and cross continents. I go for what matters for me, what I care for, is the same way that I get here, so why would I change? From sand mines in Cameroon to an MMA championship, Francis Ngannou on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. If you're among the millions impacted by this season's smoky skies, you may be checking air quality measurements by color, like 
code red. But that is actually not the most severe level. More on the reasons behind that in just a moment. First, we are following President Joe Biden and his dash for cash. He attended two fundraisers today in Chicago and has another two tomorrow in New York City. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith was at a couple of Biden campaign events in Maryland last night, and she's been digging into what all this fundraising says about the state of the re-election campaign. Hey, Tam. Hello. Seems like a lot of fundraising for, well, I don't know, 18 months before the election. What's going on here? Well, there is a big campaign finance reporting deadline in a couple of days. So the president, the vice president, the first lady, the second gentleman, they are all out doing these events, speaking to wealthy donors in private settings, uh, typically homes. Um, And all told, they've done more than 20 of them in the last few months. Uh, Biden himself has done more than a dozen since launching his re-election campaign. You got a firsthand look at a couple of them. What are they like? Yeah, I was part of the pool of reporters who follows the president wherever he goes. And we followed to Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is this affluent suburb of Washington, D.C. The first fundraiser was really quite intimate. There were maybe 20 people in what I'm guessing was the living room of uh, Michael and Susie Gelman's home. Susie Gelman's grandfather owned the Levi Strauss Company, and uh, she and her husband have been quite active in both Democratic politics and Jewish organizations. Uh, So the president in this living room grabs a handheld microphone. He moved around the room. uh, And in the end, he took questions, but we didn't get to see that part. The second fundraiser was a very short motorcade away held in a tent in Sandy and Stuart Bynum's backyard next to the swimming pool. It was dumping rain and the donors all were quite soggy as they came in. Um, That one was bigger, about 60 people around large weddings like you'd see at a uh, large tables like you'd see at a wedding. Um, And Stuart Bynum is the chairman of Choice Hotels, um, also a very wealthy donor. He said this was the third time that Biden has been to his home, uh, which I think is what happens when you're a big donor. Um, Biden said he would keep his remarks brief and then he talked for 45 minutes in a very free-flowing manner. And what did he talk about for those 45 minutes? Well, a lot of this, the same sorts of things that we would see from him on camera. Uh, but it, it was sort of a different vibe. I'd say that the, the Biden that I've seen at fundraisers is more like the Biden... I saw and you saw when he was vice president and we were covering him then. He's less guarded, more loose. Um, Last night, there was a helicopter that buzzed right over the tent and he joked, oh, that's Trump. He always flies over. Um, There's not a script. Um, I would say at times he pulls back the curtain more. He uh, often talks about his decision to run in 2019 and tells this very personal story about conversations he had with his grandchildren about how brutal the campaign would be. And that's not a story that he's told on camera. Uh, He talked yesterday about his views on Roe versus Wade and said that as a practicing Catholic, quote, I'm not big on abortion. And then he went into more detail about his views on abortion than he usually does in public. Um, and and also, he's a lot more loose when talking about foreign policy. And that's gotten him into trouble at some fundraisers, right? Indeed. Uh, at a fundraiser last week in California, he referred to Chinese President Xi Jinping as a dictator, which is out of sync with the official government line and was not well received by China. And that was just as U.S. diplomats were making progress in repairing relations. At a fundraiser in New York last October, he talked about his concerns about nuclear Armageddon as relates to Vladimir Putin's Russia. Um, so he's a bit more blunt at times, but he's also pretty consistent. Uh, he always says that he's never been more 
optimistic about America than he is today, whether he's talking to donors or on camera. Any idea how much money he's raising? We don't know yet, um, but these fundraisers have mostly been for the Biden Victory Fund, uh, which means that that money is shared between the campaign, the Democratic National Committee, and state parties. In theory, each donor could get up to nearly a million dollars this campaign cycle. We don't know if they're maxing out, and we won't know how much they raised until July 15th when a report comes out. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thanks for coming into the studio. You're welcome. Smoke from Canadian wildfires is again blanketing parts of the U.S. in a thick haze. Midwestern cities like Chicago, Minneapolis, Detroit, and Milwaukee posted some of the worst air quality in the world yesterday and today. As the smoke spreads south and east, millions of Americans are anxiously scanning air quality maps and focusing on two colors, purple and red. Red is obviously terrible. Purple is even worse. NPR's Netta Ulibi tells us how purple came to be a scarier color than red. Red is the traditional color of danger, of stop signs, of warnings. So it's also the color on the government chart showing the air quality index is more than 150, meaning unhealthy. When it's more than 200, it's purple, very unhealthy. This makes sense to information designer Georgia Lupi. From yellow to orange to red, and purple is the next color in the spectrum. But isn't purple a positive color? Royalty, luxury, the aggressively lovable dinosaur Barney, the L.A. Lakers, the Minnesota Vikings. But Loopy says purple can be dark, livid, and sinister. Think about bruises and the color purple on skin when talking about a disease. None of this was in the air, so to speak, when the Environmental Protection Agency held a conference back in the 1990s. There was a lot of controversial stuff on the agenda, including a brand new color-coded air quality index chart. Scientist Susan Stone was there, along with a number of advocates and state, local, and tribal officials. And I was just totally surprised that colors was the topic that really blew the whole discussion up. They were getting so heated that we were saying, we need to call a break because otherwise people are going to start shoving each other. Back then, Stone says, the idea of using even red for air quality was somewhat theoretical. It looked like at the time, looking back at the data, that if we were to put red at hazardous, it would never occur. These were the days in the late 90s and early 2000s before the huge wildfires out west. So it was extremely rare to get into the hazardous range. So rare, the EPA thought purple might never be used. Now even purple is not bad enough. The very, very worst color is maroon. That's partly because black does not read well on maps and you cannot see the borders. Still, purple clearly indicates a royal mess. Neto Ulibi. NPR News. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, as a young military officer, Ukrainian General Viktor Nazarov spent years in the Soviet army. Some of his fellow officers from that time are currently senior figures in Russia's military. Now, as chief advisor to Ukraine's top general, he's battling people he once fought alongside. Our correspondent in Ukraine sat down with the general. You can hear parts of that conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition. Just ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with the system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is WBUR. Lots of clouds, some bright sunshine this afternoon. Can't rule out showers from time to time. Tonight, cloudy skies down around the mid-60s. Tomorrow, partly sunny, again around 80 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. How do you cope with living in searing heat? We'll find out from residents of Dallas, Texas. We drank a lot of water before we came out. We're going to do the same thing before we come back. We're probably going to be on here for less than 30 minutes total and then be back in the AC. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, June 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll also hear how the high heat is taxing the Texas power grid. The Wagner Group private militia that appeared to be threatening Russia's president last week has acted on Russia's behalf well outside the region. Its operations in sub-Saharan Africa coming up. And also actor Kevin Spacey in court in London. These stories and numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 501, 80 degrees in the Boston area. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Texas will continue to experience brutally hot conditions for the next several days, with highs climbing well above the 100-degree mark. An excessive heat warning is in effect until this evening for many parts of the state. Member station KACU, Samantha Gutierrez has more. Abilene is predicted to hit 107, with heat indices climbing to 111 degrees. Nate Lester, Deputy Emergency Manager with Abilene Emergency Management, said reports of heat-related health problems are piling up, and he says residents should know the difference between different types of illnesses caused by the heat. So if you're having heat cramps or heat exhaustion, you need to get to a cool place, try to cool down, uh, get some help. If you're having signs of a heat stroke, uh, you need to get some medical attention pretty quickly. Officials and nonprofit groups in Abilene and across Texas are opening cooling centers during the hottest part of the day. I'm Samantha Gutierrez in Abilene. The former Marine who killed an unhoused man in the New York City subway last month is pleaded not guilty to manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. Samantha Max of member station WNYC has more. Daniel Penny is accused of putting Jordan Neely in a chokehold and continuing to restrain him even after he stopped breathing. Prominent conservatives are supporting Penny. And an online legal defense fund has raised about $3 million. 
But attorneys representing Neely's family say those millions of dollars can't prevent justice. Here's Dante Mills outside the courthouse in Lower Manhattan. He took a life. And for everyone who thought donating $3 million would somehow make this go away or buy his pass, it's not going to happen. Penny's attorneys say their client was acting in self-defense and think Manhattan jurors who ride the subway will sympathize. For NPR News, I'm Samantha Max in New York. President Biden is making another pitch for his economic policies today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports during a stop in Chicago. President outlined his vision for the nation's economy, dubbed Bidenomics. During his speech, President Biden said his administration's economic policies are working and that he's turning things around. Biden also once again blasted the theory of trickle-down economics, saying the belief has failed the nation's middle class for decades. As the 2024 presidential campaign heats up, the president continues to face sharp criticism for his handling of the economy and stubbornly high inflation. NPR's Windsor Johnston. One of the current themes of the economy over the past six months to a year has been a recession is coming in the U.S., if not this quarter, then next, or perhaps next year. But so far, recession, where art thou? As of the moment, at least based on the common definition, back-to-back negative quarters and an official deceleration from the arbiter of U.S. recession, the economy continues to grow. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 74 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Former Connecticut governor and U.S. Republican Senator Lowell Weicker is being remembered by Massachusetts Senator Edward Markey as a principled leader. Weicker's death was confirmed today by his family following a short illness. Markey says Weicker was a Republican who had an old-fashioned view about what public service was all about. He was a Republican from a different era. Uh, During Watergate, he was willing to stand up and to challenge a president of his own party, Richard Nixon. Markey says Weicker championed legislation that led to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Lowell Weicker was 92 years old. A week from today, the Sumner Tunnel in Boston that goes from Logan Airport to downtown will be closed to traffic for two months. The shutdown will allow workers to continue the ongoing major renovation project. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is assuring East Boston residents that there's a plan to assure that they will not be disrupted in terms of how the city responds to emergencies in the neighborhood. We'll be adding frontline ambulances with at least one and up to two dedicated ambulances deployed and available to respond to emergencies in East Boston at any given time. Traffic will be detoured to the Tobin Bridge and the Ted Williams Tunnel. Stacy Thompson is head of transit advocacy organization Livable Streets. Speaking on Radio Boston today, she urged people to avoid the area. Even if you don't live on the North Shore, even if you don't think that you ever drive through the Sumner Tunnel, this will have ripple impacts across the region. And it's really important to start making plans now, especially if you're going to the airport. For commuters, the blue line will be free. Fares on the commuter rail will be reduced. Flights at Logan Airport now are being delayed because of the thunderstorms across the Northeast. The website FlightAware reports there have been 271 delays at Logan today, 54 cancellations. Nationally, 3,000 flights have been delayed and 800 canceled because of the storms across the country. 80 degrees now in the Boston area. Maybe some thunderstorms, but right now a mix of clouds and sunshine. Showers possible also from time to time. Tonight, cloudy skies down around the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny, again around 80 degrees tops. 79 degrees in Boston at 5.07.
WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In a moment, we'll hear more about the presence of the Wagner Group in Africa and what the recent rebellion in Russia could mean for the mercenaries based there. We start this hour with the heat wave hitting several states in the south, especially Texas. The National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat warning, and the heat index feels like 115 degrees in places. KERA's Toluwani Osibamawo asked people in Dallas how they're coping with the sweltering temperatures. The unusually harsh heat is thanks to a weather phenomenon called a heat dome. It happens when high pressure in the Earth's atmosphere traps hot ocean air like a lid. But the threat of high temperatures isn't keeping residents like Ashley Hardy inside. She took her dog Connor out on Dallas's Katy Trail this morning. I'm up this early mainly because I have the dog, so I'm trying to get him out before it gets too hot, and then myself as well. Hardy's lived in Dallas her whole life, but she says she has yet to experience a June this warm. To me, it feels like it gets hotter every summer. Parts of the trail are shaded by trees and water fountains are available for those on the path. But the city of Dallas has also set up cooling stations for residents looking to quickly get out of the heat. For Hardy and other pet owners, the main goal is the same, stay hydrated. We drank a lot of water before we came out. We're going to do the same thing before we come back. We're probably going to be on here for less than 30 minutes total and then be back in the AC. Cameron Haskell, who was jogging on the trail, says the heat is mostly a mind thing for him, but he has to think about his dog, Nala, too. I made the mistake yesterday. I ran her yesterday afternoon and I thought she was going to die. Like, really, yeah, she fell out. So that's why I try to come in the morning. The morning is also best for Dan Ayala, who is taking a stroll on the trail. I work in, uh, inside for most of the day, so just love being able to get out before it gets too hot at midday. And for people who do stay inside, power officials say not to blast the AC too much because the heat wave is testing the state's power grid. Chels Holmes was working out on Katy Trail as she does most days. Her advice in this heat is simple. Stay cool out there. It's real hot. <laughs> For NPR News, I'm Toluani Osibemowo in Dallas. As people in Texas and throughout the South crank up the AC to stay cool, they are pushing the limits of their power supply. So far in Texas, the state's troubled power grid is handling the extra demand. Mose Bouchelle from member station KUT in Austin joins us now to talk more about how. Hi there. Hi there. So how is the state's power grid holding up so far? Well, we're using more electricity in Texas right now than we ever have, and that is causing uh, really a lot of anxiety. Uh, you might remember our power grid failed a couple years ago during a big winter storm. So whenever energy demand goes up, people worry. Uh, Allison Silverstein is a former state and federal energy regulator. She's now a consultant here in Austin. She says this time we've been able to meet that high demand, and the reason is renewable power, wind, and especially solar have made up around a third of the energy we've used in this heat wave. Because, as is perfectly obvious to every Texan, when the sun is shining is when it is hottest. So that's important because a lot of conservative state leaders in Texas want to halt the growth of wind and solar here. They say it's not reliable, so they're pushing for more natural gas power plants. But got to say, natural gas has been pretty unreliable during this heat. How do you mean? Well, natural gas plants have suffered more breakdowns than expected. Um, so renewables have had to kind of pick up uh, the slack. Here's Silverstein again. When the 
whole nuclear and gas plants that we've been looking at aren't showing up with the level of dependability that policymakers assumed, it's pretty hard to support the accusation that wind and solar can't be counted on. And that already has some renewable advocates again calling for a shift in Texas energy policy. I mean, this heat's going to be sticking around the southern U.S. and next week. So what are you watching? Well, I mean, anything could happen. We're still watching the grid. Uh, We also already know that people have died in this heat, but those numbers are just starting to come in. It's going to be important to see how many more deaths occur and how those deaths are attributed, attributed, sorry, whether that's to heat or something heat related. I have to imagine folks are wondering about the role of climate change here, too. What can you tell us? Uh, Yeah, um, human-caused climate change has its fingerprints on this heat. For one thing, the duration of this weather. uh, The heat has sat on top of us for weeks now. The jet stream, that's that current of air that circles the globe, has not pushed the heat away, so to speak. Uh, Victor Murphy is a climate program manager with the National Weather Service in Fort Worth. He says the heat's been blocked from moving by other weather systems to our east and west. The prevailing wisdom is that, you know, thanks to climate change, the jet stream shifts further north and weakens you're more apt to get these blocking type uh, of weather patterns just persist for periods of time. Right. And then there's also the humidity. In much of Texas, our heat waves come with drought, but warmer atmosphere can hold more water. So this time we've had a near tropical like humidity and on top of this extreme heat in parts of the state where that doesn't usually happen. That makes it so it's it doesn't really cool off at night and it drives up that heat index that feels like temperature. It makes things even more unbearable. Mose Bouchelle with KUT in Austin, thanks so much and do your best to stay cool. Thank you, I will. Mercenaries with the Wagner Group face a choice after the uprising in Russia over the weekend. They can fight with the Russian military or choose exile in Belarus with the group's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. So what does this mean for the group's network in other parts of the world, specifically Africa? Ambassador J. Peter Fahm is the former U.S. Special Envoy to the Sahel region, and he joins us from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Good to have you here. Thank you for having me. We've heard a lot over the last year about the Wagner mercenary group's role on the front lines of the war in Ukraine. What's their role in sub-Saharan Africa? Well, in recent years, the Wagner group has taken on a role of using opportunities offered to make a break into Central and West Africa to provide security for embattled governments and in exchange getting access to gold and other resources and also, if you will, tying down resources from Western countries, including the United States, but also France and others, in trying to beat back their attempts to foment anti-democratic movements, anti-Western movements, as well as exploiting resources. And in some cases, as the UN recently documented in Mali, perpetrating also human rights abuses. And so how closely are they tied to Russia's interests and agenda in their actions in the region? Well, on one hand, they certainly have advanced Russian access to resources and also to political leaders while at the same time giving Russia deniability because they're not directly tied to the Russian state. It is Wagner PMC as they branded themselves. But Hmm. with this takeover of Wagner after the events of this past week, the question remains if Russia takes direct control of them, then you lose that plausible or implausible deniability that they've had and used advantageously to deny when it was 
suitable or advantageous to deny control of their activities. And so how do you think this is going to go for the Wagner Group network in Africa? Are they going to become more closely tied to Russia explicitly or kind of spin off into a group that is allegedly disconnected from this organization that now is supposed to either join forces with the Russian military or head to Belarus? Well, I think it remains to be seen. Russia has not been very clear. There have been some conflicting statements, including from Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, about what's going to be the fate of Wagner contractors outside of Russia. Those in Russia are expected to sign up, as you said, Ari, either with the Russian Ministry of Defense or join Prigozhin in his exile in Belarus. But those outside, they've been very clear about that yet. And that's the question of what's going to happen to them if they sign up. Does the Russian state really want to be responsible for their actions? Secondly, cut off from Prigozhin and the network that he built, one loses a bit of the profitability, if you will, of these mercenary operations. It's not just fighting or providing security. It's also been exploiting resources and then trading them illicitly across borders. We're talking about everything from gold to alcohol. And that's been enabled by networks Prigozhin created. I'm not sure those are going to transfer over. Let's talk more about the illicit activities, the human rights abuses that have been alleged. Just yesterday, the Biden administration announced sanctions against the group connected to its illicit gold dealings. And the State Department says that had nothing to do with the attempted uprising in Russia. Tell us more about that. Well, this is something that's been building up. There's been documentation, a number of human rights groups, as well as the U.S. government have been investigating this for some time, including back when I served in the administration. So the evidence is quite clear that not just Wagner-connected business people, but also corrupt government officials are using their presence to, in some cases, push off artisanal workers, etc., and seize these resources for themselves. And that's what pays for these operations and makes them particularly profitable. And the question is going to be that exploitation war resources will continue or whether these operations fold as a result of Prigozhin's actions this past weekend. Can you characterize how African people and governments interact with Wagner, how they are viewed on the continent? Well, I think they were originally many of them, many governments, the Central African Republic being the first one to turn to them for security, but also Mali and a number of other states viewed them as they didn't ask questions. They provided military assistance with few or any strings attached. They were a thing of convenience. Now, however, with what has happened, they may not seem as certain or as convenient. And I think those in the West, the United States and its European allies, as well as Africans who view this as a threat. Now it's an opportunity perhaps to turn the table, not only on the mercenaries, but also to bring around the governments who brought them in to realize that perhaps this was not the best deal they ever struck. Ambassador J. Peter Fahm is former U.S. Special Envoy to the Sahel region, speaking with us from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's now a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes, actor Kevin Spacey appears in a London court as the jury is sworn in for the beginning of his trial for alleged sexual offenses, charges the actor denies. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by members of the Massachusetts Energy Marketers Association, committed to reducing carbon emissions with clean, renewable bioheat fuel. MyBioheat.com. Ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about a quarter of a percent. S&P lost a small fraction. The Nasdaq gained about a quarter of a percent. Electric vehicle policies in Massachusetts are getting high marks compared to other states. But a new national report finds that all states need to take more action to address gas-powered transportation. It is the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Here's WBR's Paula Mora. This year, Massachusetts moved up one rank into fourth place nationally when it comes to EV policy, according to a report by an industry research nonprofit. The state ranked well on policies providing incentives to buy electric vehicles and install EV chargers. Peter Huther is the report's lead author. He says only California, the highest-ranked state, scored well in equity policies. I think some areas that Massachusetts could potentially improve on would be around financial incentives for low-income drivers, as well as including the needs of low-income communities in the planning efforts. Massachusetts scored well on overall transportation emissions reduction goals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. It's 520. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Listen to WBUR anywhere you're headed this summertime. Just tap to listen live and catch up on all that's happening in the news. Download or update the WBUR app now. In the forecast, kind of sticky out there still. A mixed sky this afternoon and this evening. Cloudy overnight tonight in the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, should be up around 80 degrees once again. And again, a mixture of sunshine and clouds. Maybe a few showers here and there. 79 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At UMA.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. While the U.S. discusses President Biden's age ahead of his re-election bid, he's 80 years old, other rapidly aging societies worry about what some observers call silver democracy. That's when older politicians make policies that disproportionately benefit older voters. As NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports, in the world's most aged society, Japan, rejuvenating politics is seen as an uphill battle. In April, a lone attacker lobbed what looked like a pipe bomb at Prime Minister Fumio Kishida as he gave a stump speech in the city of Wakayama. Nobody was hurt. Police arrested a 24-year-old suspect named Ryuji Kimura. Last June, Kimura sued the government. He reportedly wanted to stand for election to Japan's upper house of parliament. 
but he claims he was unfairly barred because he was under the minimum age of 30 and was required to put up a deposit equivalent to more than $22,000. Kimura has not explained his motives. Investigators are looking into whether the lawsuit had anything to do with it. But the discussion in Japan has already turned to age and politics. This is being introduced as a story where he has kind of resentment towards the politicians who don't allow younger people to run for office. That's Jeffrey Hall, an expert on Japanese politics at Kandai University of International Studies near Tokyo. In Japan, citizens over 65 form the nation's largest voting bloc, and they receive an overwhelming share of government welfare spending. Yale University postdoctoral associate Charles McLean has done research that shows that while Scandinavian countries, for example, might spend three to four times more on the elderly than they do on young families like per capita, you know, or like on children, say per capita. Countries like Japan or the U.S., it's much more like 20 times more. McLean also notes that Japan has one of the lowest proportions of young politicians among developed economies. It's not that voters won't vote for young candidates, he says. A reason why countries like Japan and the U.S. too have very few young people in office is that elections are just prohibitively expensive for candidates. They require not just cash, but name recognition and personal networks. That favors either older candidates or the offspring of political dynasties. Some activists have tried to drum up youth political participation, such as with this satirical video that came out ahead of elections in 2019. In it, older voters tell younger ones that voting is a waste of their time. Pension funds going bankrupt? It doesn't matter. I'm getting one. Global warming? I don't care what happens 20 or 30 years from now. The video's creator, 29-year-old comedian and activist Nana Takamatsu, says the problem is that many young Japanese despair of changing their country through politics. This is because we do not teach people in school how to change society. I am concerned that if this situation continues, there will be more copycats who think that the way to change society is through force, through terrorism. This month, the Kishida administration pledged to double spending on child care to halt Japan's plunging birth rate. Prime Minister Kishida did not detail exactly how he's going to pay for the increase. One possible problem, says Jeffrey Hall, is that... The older voters might react negatively to something that's too expensive or might cause them to have to pay for basically a future that they won't deal with or a situation that they don't quite understand. Because when they were young, a single income was often enough to raise a family. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. For decades, scientists commonly believed that early humans had a pretty strict division of labor. Men did the hunting, women did the gathering. That view has been shifting. And a new study could upend it. NPR Science Desk correspondent Nareet Eisenman is here to explain. Hey, Nareet. Hi, Ari. How did scientists even come up with this early vision of man as hunter, woman as gatherer? We're talking about humans that live millennia ago, right? Yeah. This is the period starting roughly 200,000 years ago when we first emerged as a species. 
that ended about 9,000 years ago when humans started to develop agriculture and settlements. But all over the world, there have been a fair number of people in remote areas who still live this foraging life. And so scholars have looked to them as a sort of window into humanity's past. Anthropologists would go live with them, produce detailed reports. And the sense was that all these accounts pointed to men mainly hunting and women mainly gathering with occasional exceptions. But it appears this was based on scientists' anecdotal impressions. No one had actually done a systematic tally of what all these observational reports actually said about women hunting. And so is the tally what this new study has done? Exactly. This was done by a team from University of Washington and Seattle Pacific University. They combed through accounts from as far back as the 1800s through to present day. And their finding, published in the journal PLOS One, is that in almost 80% of the societies there's data for, women were hunting. And this wasn't just women killing some animal the woman happened upon. Here's the lead author, Kara Walsh-Scheffler. The hunting was purposeful. Women had their own toolkit. They had favorite weapons. Grandmas were the best hunters of the village. And in about a third of these cases, the women were hunting large mammals. I'm fascinated with how they even learn that grandmas were the best hunters in the village. But more broadly, <laughs> does this have wider implications? Yeah. While Scheffler notes that when these narratives of gender differences in early humans enter our wider culture, it can be damaging because people may assume, oh, that was the more natural way to live. And then they use that to argue that gender roles should be more rigid today. Which, as you I know. recall, is not the scientific method. <laughs> Right. Right, right. But, you know, even among scholars, this prior possibly mistaken understanding of the evidence on early human hunting may have led to faulty science when it comes to the other main strand of evidence on this topic. Uh, I'm talking now about ancient burial sites and the human remains and artifacts found there. I spoke with Randy Haas of Wayne State University. Back in 2018, he was part of a team in Peru that found a 9,000-year-old individual buried with an unusually large number of hunting tools. We all just assumed that this individual was a male, and everybody's sitting, talking around, saying things like, wow, this is, you know, this is amazing. He must have been a great hunter, a great warrior. Maybe he was a chief. Until they used some newer technology to check the bones and found that this was a woman. So Haas and his collaborators then reanalyzed similar finds across the Americas. They found about half of the time people buried with hunting tools were female. But these discoveries had basically gone under the radar, just like the findings about modern day hunter gatherers described in this latest study. The evidence had been sitting there all along in plain sight. And are other scientists revising their views based on these findings? spoke to several. There was a mix of views. Some said there wasn't enough data for conclusions. Others said the idea that women did some hunting has already been around for a while. But most felt this work was breaking new ground and opening important questions for further research. NPR's Nareet Eisenman, thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
in the forecast. Some bright skies, sometimes some clouds out there, depending on where you are, maybe some showers off and on. Overnight tonight, cloudy skies down around the mid-60s. For tomorrow, partly sunny, up around 80 degrees tops. It is 79 degrees in the Boston area. Red Sox play game two of their three-game series with the Miami Marlins tonight. Caleb Ort pitches for Boston. Braxton Garrett for Miami. First pitches at 7:10. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC, working with CEOs, business leaders, and industry experts with a goal of crafting clear, authentic presentations. More at presentationsbydeck.com. The Whole Hog Barbecue is the original style of American barbecue. It's a tradition deeply rooted in indigenous and black history. For much of barbecue's history, that work fell upon enslaved Africans and the later enslaved African Americans. We'll talk about barbecue's history and black America's complicated relationship with food and hospitality with pitmaster Ryan Mitchell. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. Stocks lost some ground today after comments from Federal Reserve Chair about the Fed's fight against high inflation. As NPR's David Gura tells us, Chairman Powell says there is a significant probability the U.S. could see a recession. The chair of the Federal Reserve was speaking on stage with other central bankers at a conference in Portugal. Jerome Powell nodded to the statistical likelihood there will be a deep economic downturn. But Powell said he's optimistic the U.S. will be able to avoid a recession. The Fed decided not to hike interest rates at its last meeting earlier this month after it raised them at the previous 10 meetings in an effort to get high inflation under control. Going forward, Powell said, he expects the Fed will make policy decisions with a little bit more time between them. And he reiterated Fed policymakers anticipate raising rates again before the end of the year. David Gura, NPR News. Airline delays are being compounded by bad weather today ahead of the long holiday weekend. Air travelers have experienced widespread delays all month long. The worst disruptions right now continue to be on the East Coast. At Newark Airport, Diane Brown and her husband Bill have been delayed for two days trying to get back home to Florida. She calls it a nightmare. There's no flights. JetBlue has no flights. United. We were supposed to go at 2.30 and that one's canceled again. We were supposed to go yesterday. That was canceled. They keep canceling everything. FlightAware says by early afternoon, 3,000 flights were delayed and another 800 were canceled. Thunderstorms caused delays in the Northeast. While even more travelers are expected to fly out of town in the coming days ahead of the July 4th holiday weekend. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 74 points, down about two-tenths of a percent. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The wildfires in Canada are again polluting the air in parts of Massachusetts. The State Department of Environmental Protection is issuing an air quality alert. It begins at midnight tonight. It covers Worcester County along with Berkshire, Franklin, Hampton and Hampshire counties. Residents who are at greatest risk are those with heart or lung disease, older adults, teenagers and people who are active outdoors. Governor Maura Healey says the ad campaign that promotes Massachusetts as a state that's welcoming and safe for everyone is designed to attract people and businesses here. Healey is on a trade mission to Ireland as a campaign featuring digital billboards is being rolled out in Florida and Texas. WBR's Steve Brown has more. Healy denies the campaign as an attempt to politically skewer the governors of states that have been passing anti-LGBTQ and reproductive rights legislation. 
Speaking from Dublin, Healy says the campaign is intended to attract people to Massachusetts. There are a lot of people out there across this country who look to and rely on certain protections, the ability to to access contraception safely, the ability to access medication abortion, the ability to, to live and go to work and go to school in a place free of discrimination and bigotry. The $750,000 campaign will place six digital billboards in Texas and another six in Florida, as well as 20 digital billboards throughout the Northeast. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. There was a commemoration today of the Irish famine held in downtown Boston. 25 years ago today, the city unveiled its memorial as part of an international effort to mark the date of the 150th anniversary of the famine. Author and historian Michael Quinlan says Boston was a top destination for the thousands who emigrated to the U.S. to escape hunger. And so for the rest of the century, the Irish continued to come to Boston and continued up until the 1960s, let's say. And in many ways, it was the Irish famine that began to give Boston its Irish character. The Irish famine began in the mid-1840s and is blamed for the deaths of one million people. A group of critically endangered sea turtles is back in the ocean after it was rehabilitated at the New England Aquarium. The four turtles were released on Cape Cod this morning. They're among the more than 500 sea turtles stranded on Cape beaches over the winter. They were unable to regulate their body temperature in the cold waters and became incapacitated. It's now 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Immerse yourself in the creations of eight international artists working with living plants. Then visit Isabella's blooming courtyard, GardnerMuseum.org. Usual mix today, sunshine, some foreboding clouds, some showers thrown in. Could have some showers in the rumble of thunder tonight, about 66 for a low. Then for tomorrow, clouds and sunshine taking turns again, up around 80 degrees. In the Boston area, 79 degrees at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The trial began today in London for one of Hollywood's best-known actors to face sexual assault charges as part of the Me Too movement. Two-time Oscar winner Kevin Spacey faces 12 counts involving four men in the UK over the course of a dozen years. To talk us through today's events inside and outside the London courtroom is journalist Willem Marx. Welcome. Thanks so much. So tell us what happened today in court. Well, Spacey, who's now age 63, he arrived early at Southwark Crown Court. That's in central southeast London. He was dressed in a suit and a pink tie. He was accompanied by his manager, amongst others. He greeted onlookers before entering, confirmed his full name, which is Kevin Spacey Fowler, to the judge once he was inside the courtroom. He didn't say much more than that. A dozen jurors and two alternates were selected without too much back and forth between the prosecution and defence lawyers. And then the judge spoke to the jury members that had been selected about the importance of avoiding media coverage whenever possible in the coming weeks as the trial continues. 
Kevin Spacey smiled and he nodded when the judge acknowledged that some, if not all, of the assembled jurors would probably already know who he was and had perhaps even seen several or many of his films. Okay, and how long has this legal process taken to get to this point? Well, you may remember there have been a number of allegations around his behaviour levelled against Spacey on, on both sides of the Atlantic, really. And indeed, there have been several criminal and civil cases in the US, although none have so far gone against him. Here in the UK, he was first charged by the state prosecutors, they're known as the Crown Prosecution Service, back in May last year. That initially was on five counts involving three different men. Then, in initial hearing back in July last year, he pled not guilty to those initial counts. Then the prosecutors lengthened the charge sheet. He appeared again in a London courtroom this January to once more plead not guilty against seven other separate charges over the period from 2001 to 2013, and, and the fourth um, alleged victim was then added. Since then, he's been on unconditional bail, having voluntarily travelled from the US to the UK on those previous occasions to face those accusations. And, and this current trial is expected to last at least four weeks, with the opening statement scheduled for this Friday. And Willem, what have these accusations meant for Kevin Spacey's career? Well, these accusations in the UK, together with a number of different allegations levelled by individuals in the US, plus, of course, all the media reporting about them, has meant a man who was once one of the world's most, I guess, bankable movie and television stars, he's appeared in far fewer productions than you might otherwise expect. You can possibly remember he was entirely written out of that final season of the Netflix hit show House of Cards. Mm -hmm. Another Netflix movie about Gore Vidal was cancelled that was starring him. And then Christopher Plummer replaced him in a feature film called All the Money in the World about John Paul Getty. His agents, his publicists, they all severed ties with him. And there's clearly a lot riding on the trial for him. If he's, if he's found guilty, it will likely lead to a lengthy prison sentence here in Britain. If he's acquitted, though, he recently told the German magazine Die Zeit in an interview that there are many producers and directors lining up to pretty immediately start working with him again on new projects. Willem Marks in London, thank you. Thank you. A new law in Florida targeting undocumented people takes effect July 1st. It requires hospital patients to show their immigration status, and companies with more than 25 employees must use the e-verify system to make sure workers are in the country legally. WLRN's Wilkin Brutus attended a meeting of immigrants in South Florida who were figuring out how the new law could affect them. Across the street from Lake Worth High School in Palm Beach County, dozens of immigrants sit in a dark room, bowing their heads in prayer. This isn't a church, though. The group is gathered at the Guatemalan Maya Center. And so many immigrants showed up to learn more about Florida's new immigration law that they needed an overflow room. The group listened to a Zoom call with legal experts who were trying to clear up misinformation about SB 1718. If they get stopped, do they have the right to record the situation? After the meeting, I spoke to an indigenous Guatemalan woman who asked me not to use her name to protect her privacy. She said the law is especially frightening for people in the area who speak Mayan languages. Despite her own fear and uncertainty, she volunteers to translate information about the law for her indigenous neighbors. They don't speak Spanish. They don't speak English. They don't understand exactly what happened because they have another language. We have like mom. 
It's like 20 dialects. She speaks most of the languages. Her kids were born in the U.S., so her family is what people refer to as mixed status. Like many Guatemalans, she moved to Lake Worth Beach after fleeing poverty and ongoing violence. She says some immigrants wrestle with the decision to trek toward immigrant-friendly states. Personally, I'm so scared. Everything is changed because the community is so scared. Among many provisions, the new law requires that companies e-verify workers' immigration status and invalidates out-of-state ID cards like a driver's license. A lot of people, it's moving. I contact on Massachusetts and like three family moves there. Pennsylvania, it's two families move in Pennsylvania. But sometimes they don't have family and they don't know how they can go there. So it's, it's so, so sad. Republican Representative Rick Roth, whose district includes parts of Palm Beach County, has been trying to convince immigrants to stay. Well, we're hearing stories about employees already leaving. Some people are saying that they're being told that if they leave now, they can get a, you know, a job in another state, but if they wait too long, you know, there won't be any jobs left. He's also a farmer and keeps telling his employees that they are safe and the law will only affect new immigrants. Another provision in the law requires hospitals to ask each patient about their immigration status and report the data to the state. Dana Torres, the clinic director at the Guatemalan Maya Center, is reassuring her clients that by federal law, they can still receive medical care. And if they're asked about their immigration status, she says they don't have to answer. It's just that one question that's now going to be asked and you can decline to answer it. So I feel like if we can just focus on that piece of it and not add on to it, we can help minimize the fears. Torres says many critics of the law focus on how it will affect the economy, not how it will affect those targeted by the law. You see people sharing videos about, look at these construction sites, they're now empty. And yes, like that is an important point to make, but also, all those jobs are very exploitive. And so we want to preserve our communities because we love our communities, because they contribute so much to us and because they're a part of us, not because of their labor value. And I think that sometimes those conversations get lost in trying to make a point. Torres says the center launched a fundraiser to support people who decide to leave the state, while at the same time trying to convince others to stay. For NPR News, I'm Wilkin Brutus in Lake Worth Beach. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The mountains, lakes, deep woods, and rugged coastlines of Maine's Acadia National Park are home to more than 300 species of birds. Volunteers are now making recordings to document the avian soundscape, which is changing quickly. Maine Public's Murray Carpenter reports. At sunrise on a June morning, Laura Sebastianelli is starting off down a trail in Acadia National Park. She's wearing headphones and holding a big microphone that looks like a satellite dish about the diameter of a large pizza. Soon, she aims it in the direction of a warbler. 
So we actually were hearing two common yellow throats, and they're probably kind of countersinging. So it's one male telling the other male, this is my territory, and the other one saying, this is my territory. For six years, Sebastianelli's been taping the bird songs of Acadia, and she and her team have gathered over 1,200 recordings. She's caught songs that are emblematic of summer in the North Woods, like the Swainson's thrush. and the white-throated sparrow. And rarer sounds like the call of the American bittern, a wetlands bird in steep decline. Climate change is adding urgency to the project as cold-loving species abandon Acadia and southern species arrive. We already know an example would be boreal chickadees. Used to breed in the park as late as the mid-90s, Seth Benz of the Skudik Institute is supporting the recording project. You can't find a breeding boreal chickadee in the park right now. Canada jays would come down and winter here. Can't find them anymore. The recordings are being archived at the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where Jay McGowan says they're important specimens. How did this area sound before it was developed or before climate change, you know, drastically changed the habitat? So all of these uh, snapshots in time of the acoustic soundscape are potentially really valuable in ways that we have not yet understood. Sebastianelli's recordings also help to supply Cornell's popular birding app, Merlin, which helps identify bird species by their calls using a smartphone. Out on the trail, Sebastianelli runs into Teresa Kramer and Brian Chevalier, who say they've been using the app to identify bird songs on their hike and ask her to confirm their results. Well, it, there was the common raven, the magnolia warbler, and the black-throated green warbler. Does that sound right? All of them. Yeah. 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 Okay. That Great. Right. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, we were definitely trying to listen for that scream of the common raven. A few minutes later, Sebastianelli stops to tape the calls of the raven, still echoing out over a salt marsh. <laughs> Back at the trailhead, Sebastianelli says it's like she's sending an audio postcard to future generations. Who knows what people are going to use this for? Who knows what education uh, projects? Is this going to be, you know, a point in time where like, oh, I wonder what Acadia National Park sounded like 50 years ago. <gasps> wow, how different, you know, who knows? For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Some stormy weather around the East Coast is causing significant delays at Logan Airport. The website FlightAware reports Logan is ordering all flights that would be headed to Logan to stay at the airport of origin until 6.15 tonight. So far today, at least 270 flights at Logan have been delayed. 54 were canceled. Thousands of flights nationally have been delayed and 800 canceled because of the storms. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, 
partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com And Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at CatchlightPainting.com Can't rule out some showers overnight tonight. Nothing serious, though. Maybe the rumble of thunder from time to time. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny. Again, around 80 degrees tops. It's 549. Francis Ngannou holds the record for the world's strongest punch. But before finding a career in mixed martial arts, he endured hunger and homelessness and cross continents. I go for what matters for me, what I care for, is the same way that I get here, so why would I change? From sandmines in Cameroon to an MMA championship, Francis Ngannou on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In 1940, construction workers in Miami Beach laid the groundwork for an Art Deco building called the Helena. Over the decades, apartment 2B would house painters and musicians, army men and refugees. The building and the people who live in it all spring from the imagination of Ana Menendez. She's the author of the new book, The Apartment. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Before the apartment at the center of your novel exists, you introduce us in the book's opening pages to an indigenous woman collecting sea turtle eggs. Will you read from the end of this introduction, this prologue? Yes, I'd love to. Here, where the woman disturbs the burrowing creatures, in this same patch where she pauses to listen to the sea's roar, Many years from now, workers will cut a path by hand. A street will cover the wound. A man named William will buy a plot. And an architect named Henry will design a two-story building. He'll name it the Helena, after his mother, who told him stories to help him sleep. And so we begin the next chapter, and we're in 1942, many decades or centuries later. Why did you want to begin before Europeans arrived in Florida? That was a rather late decision. And what I hope it gives the book is the sense of time as almost another character in the book and gives it the sweep because the ending is also meant to push you way eons into the future. Mm. You introduce us very early on in the text to a Spanish word, morina, What does the word mean? And how did you think about the concept in relation to the narrative you were writing? It's a concept that I think runs through maybe all of my books, this sense of uh, saudade, as Portuguese maybe would describe it. Most cultures have a word for this. It's the sort of uh, bittersweet nostalgia, the sense that the past is sweet and wonderful to wallow in precisely because it cannot be recovered. And I think that that's an obsession that has run through most of what I write, not consciously, uh, but but simply as a product of my upbringing and and my own situation. My parents, of course, are immigrants. They call themselves exiles from Cuba. And so for me, it speaks to, you know, one doesn't need to be an exile or a migrant to have this sense that things were sweet in the past and to 
to sort of take refuge in it. There's a kind of paradox here that this is a book about a literal home, and yet it's full of a sense of kind of restlessness and longing and displacement. Yes, indeed. I think there's, you know, this one obviously is from my imagination, but there are so many buildings like this all over the world, frankly, and all through time and history. But you do get the sense once you rent an apartment that there are many, many stories in those walls that you'll probably never really know. Most of the characters who we meet disappear at the end of their chapter as time moves forward in the book. Was there anyone whose story you personally had a hard time letting go of, somebody who you wanted to follow for more than a chapter, who you thought, oh, I wish I could write a whole novel about this person? Probably at some point, all of them. And, you know, I've been working on this novel for such a long time. Um, More than a decade, right? More than a decade, yeah. Some of these characters I did revisit again. So in my mind, they never go away. I mean, they, they are almost a ghostly presence throughout. And they leave bits of conversation, you know, even, you know, philosophies. They leave their loneliness. And so for me, at least, and, and it's probably because I'm so intimately uh, <laughs> entwined with these characters, they persist through to the end for me. But You know, there were characters that I feel like I spent more time with just to get them right, perhaps. Mm. So Pilar is one that I I spent some time with, I think, uh, even though that's a rather short... Tell us about her. (laughs) Yeah, Pilar is a, a very angry journalist who's laid off during the Great Recession. It was the the great sort of decimation of American journalism in 2008, 2009. And you have personal experience as a journalist, we should say. (laughs) I I do. I mean, she's not me, and I never had to move back in with my parents, thank goodness. But I I do feel for her. Um, And I, I had a lot of fun with that character because a lot of the Miami that she remembers is the Miami that I remember. The you know, Tropical Park and El Cristo restaurant. So it's hard for her to leave. And I think that's true of many of my generation, at least, who who grew up in the place. There was one line in the book that jumped out at me, which was, have you noticed that most of the stories men tell are about how smart they are and how stupid everyone else is? And I wondered if that's the case, what do you think most of the stories women tell are about? As a woman storyteller yourself. Mm-hmm. I think the women in this book, I'm not going to be as uh, generalizing a, a chauvinist as my characters, but I think in this, in, <laughs> in, in this book, the stories that the women tell are for connection. And they are seeking connection. They're seeking understanding. They are seeking more of a uh, horizontal relationship uh, than a vertical one. And, and again, that's, you know, the women, especially in, in the Lana section, are doing that. That's n- not to say that all women do that. And tell us a little about Lana. Yeah, Lana is a, um, a mystery. She uh, shows up in apartment 2B after a lot has happened that she's not aware of, but the rest of the building is. And she's seeking to forget She is also running from ghosts in a lot of ways. She claims to have come to Miami precisely because she doesn't know anybody there. And then she's pulled into this sisterhood that has developed and that 
is trying to understand her and welcome her. Did writing this make you think about those who lived in your home before you? Or did you write this in part because you were already thinking about those people? You know, I, I didn't, no. And I don't. I mean, I, I do think when I go into, uh, you know, new places, when I, especially hotel rooms for some reason, you, you think of all of the, you know, hundreds of people who have been there before. And so there is always that sense when you walk into a place that's been inhabited. I, I do get... I do get a sense of the stories, um, but you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Um, <laughs> I, I think when you t- <laughs> when you tell stories, you find them everywhere. But it's not anything that I've gone very deep into imagining. The I don't think I want to <laughs> imagine the lives of people who've inhabited my spaces. You'd prefer not to be haunted, so. is what you're saying? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Anna Menendez is the author of the new novel, The Apartment. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From EBSCO, Weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology, designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users, anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is WBUR. Some changeable weather this evening. Overnight tonight, showers off and on. Maybe the rumble of thunder. Temperatures should be around the mid-60s. And for tomorrow, clouds and sunshine taking turns once again with highs up around 80 degrees. Friday should have mainly sunny skies at last. 79 degrees in Boston at 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A pivotal player in resolving this past weekend's short-lived revolt by a private militia group and the Russian state was the president of Belarus. Now Alexander Lukashenko, an ally of Vladimir Putin, is letting it be known that he saved Moscow from an armed revolt and talked Putin out of killing the head of the mercenary group. This is All Things Considered. Lukashenko's new prominence coming up on WBUR. Also, Governor Maura Healey's administration has digital billboards put up in Texas and Florida aimed at members of the LGBTQ community touting the welcoming state of Massachusetts. They can come to Massachusetts to grow a family, to start a business, to grow a business, and to live a life with the fullness of opportunity that they should have. And Americans are feeling the fatigue from tipping as everywhere from fast food restaurants to laundromats are asking for gratuity. 
It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russian media are reporting that a senior Russian general has been arrested in Moscow. NPR has not yet independently confirmed that, but has confirmed that General Sergei Sorovkin apparently had knowledge of plans by Wagner Group head Degeni Prigozhin to rebel against Russia's military leadership. That information is based on highly sensitive intercepts that are raising questions concerning what some inside the military may have known. General Sorovkin is a commander of Russia's aerospace forces. He also led Russia's campaign in Ukraine for a time last year. The Justice Department has announced dozens of criminal charges related to several health care fraud schemes totaling about $2.5 billion. Prosecutors brought charges across 16 states. Bureau's Jacqueline Diaz has more. 78 people are facing criminal charges for their various parts in a wide range of fraud schemes across the country. That includes at least 24 doctors and other medical professionals. The Justice Department said the alleged crimes were aimed at the elderly, pregnant women, and even HIV patients. One of the cases involved one of the largest health care fraud schemes ever prosecuted. Officials said three men submitted $1.9 billion in false and fraudulent claims to Medicare for unnecessary items. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Voting rights advocates are marking this week's 10th anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling striking down a key section of the Voting Rights Act. NPR's Hansi Luang reports despite a recent legal win, many advocates are preparing for more challenges to the law's remaining protections for voters of color. Back in 2013, the Supreme Court got rid of a formula for determining which states and counties with a history of racial discrimination had to get pre-approval from the Justice Department or federal court for any election rule changes. Ten years later, Democratic Representative Terry Sewell of Alabama says stronger federal voting rights protections are still needed. We know that our work is not done, right? As long as state legislatures around this country can continue to pass suppressive voting laws unchecked by the federal government, we need to restore federal oversight. To boost that oversight, Sewell says she plans to reintroduce the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act in September. Anzi Luong, NPR News. Smoke from Canadian wildfires is again blanking in a significant swath of the U.S. The unhealthy haze from the fires settling over the Great Lakes region and now moving southward, already extending into Missouri and Kentucky. Smoke from the fires has left Detroit with some of the worst air quality in the U.S., along with Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Cleveland, all which currently have what's labeled very unhealthy air. The smoke is expected to spread to New York City later in the week and other areas as well. Experts advise keeping windows closed, using air purifiers, and wearing masks while outdoors. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 74 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Around that, uh, following up on that story, storms around the East Coast are causing problems at Logan Airport. Massport says air traffic control is telling inbound charter flights not to leave their airport of origin until 6.15. It's an attempt to manage the backups. 319 flights at Logan have been delayed. Dozens were canceled. And the State Department of Environmental Protection is issuing an air quality alert to begin at midnight tonight. The wildfires in Canada are predicted to make the air unhealthful for at-risk people in Worcester County, along with Berkshire, Franklin, Hampton, and Hampshire counties. The closure of the Sumner Tunnel from Logan Airport in East Boston to downtown is exactly a week away. Today, the state announced a new public service campaign called Ditch the Drive to help people get around the eight-week shutdown. Here's WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Repair work on the tunnel starts July 5th. 
Jonathan Gulliver from the State Department of Transportation says traffic might seem lighter at first because people may be out of town. But... July 10th, when holiday traffic returns, is when things are especially going to be difficult. Gulliver says drivers should consider alternatives. And uh, the fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. The MBTA Blue Line and the East Boston Ferry will be free during the shutdown. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. You can find tips on how to get around the Sumner Tunnel closure at WBUR.org. Harvard Medical School is now facing a second class action lawsuit. The new suit was filed today on behalf of three families who say the remains of their family members were mishandled in the school's morgue. The morgue's former manager is facing federal criminal charges. Prosecutors say that he sold body parts from cadavers that were intended for education and research. And debris from the submersible Titan that imploded on its way to view the wreck of the Titanic have been recovered. The Canadian Coast Guard says the discovery was made by a remotely operated vehicle owned by a company with an office in Wellfleet on Cape Cod. All five people on board the Titan were killed when the submersible imploded. It is 79 degrees out there, sticky overnight tonight, cloudy up around the mid-60s. Then for tomorrow, partly sunny, some clouds around, temperatures around 80 degrees again tomorrow with the off chance of some showers. The time is 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We're continuing to track the fallout from last weekend's uprising of Wagner Group mercenaries against Russia's military leadership. But from what we know, a major player in resolving the dispute was Alexander Lukashenko, the strongman leader of Belarus. He's long had close ties with Russia and its leader, Vladimir Putin. NPR Moscow correspondent Charles Maines has been looking into Lukashenko's role, and he joins us on the line. Hi there. Hi there. So, Charles, both the Kremlin and the head of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, say the leader of neighboring Belarus was the key intermediary. So tell us, what was his role exactly? Well, Lukashenko says he was on the phone with Prigozhin and the Kremlin throughout the crisis. Uh, That allowed him to broker a deal by which Prigozhin agreed to pull back his forces in exchange for an amnesty deal for Prigozhin and his men uh, that includes Lukashenko hosting them in exile in Belarus. So that's the gist of the bargain that we know. Uh, Yet in a televised meeting with his generals yesterday, Lukashenko shared all sorts of juicy details. Uh, For example, uh, the Prigozhin spent the first half hour yelling obscenities into the phone. And also this one, Lukashenko talked Putin out of murdering Prigozhin outright. Lukashenko says he told Putin, okay, we can kill him, no problem, but it's a bad idea. And Lukashenko said there wouldn't be any negotiations and Wagner's fighters would strike back. And even though Russia would win in the end, uh, thousands of civilians would die. Now, now it's hard to parse truth from false modesty here. uh, And Putin yesterday made clear the amnesty deal was his decision. uh, But no question about it, Lukashenko comes away looking like the cooler head in all of this. All sides are giving him credit for that. Okay, so that raises the question of why Lukashenko? What is the nature of his relationship with Putin? 
Well, Lukashenko has been the leader of Belarus for over two decades now, uh, yet in 2020, uh, Lukashenko's hold on power appeared under threat after he was accused of rigging elections. And when hundreds of thousands of Belarusians took to the streets in protest, it was Putin who came to Lukashenko's rescue, providing financial aid and at least the threat of additional Russian forces to suppress the uprising. So, so one way you could look at it is that these recent events, uh, Lukashenko is essentially repaying the favor. Yet I spoke with Yoheni Preyerman of the Minsk Dialogue Council, that's an international affairs think tank in the capital of Belarus, who said this was Lukashenko really protecting his own interests against the political opposition that fled Belarus in the 2020 crackdown, uh, but continued to hope for democratic change. And they were immediately saying that this whole situation creates a window of opportunity for us. So Lukashenko's exact interest was to ensure that no major destabilization happens in Russia because had that happened, a window of opportunity for the opposition would indeed have emerged. And Charles, I mean, Belarus is or is certainly one of Russia's closest allies. What role has the country played in the war in Ukraine? You know, ever since 2020, Lukashenko has been beholden to Putin for that help, and it's chipped away at Belarus's sovereignty. It's turned it into a client state of Russia's. And Putin since has been pushing for a long-stalled union state between the two countries to take hold, with Belarus clearly the junior partner. Uh, And even though Belarus isn't formally part of the war in Ukraine, in the sense that soldiers aren't fighting, uh, the country is nonetheless clearly Russia's ally in the conflict. Uh, Russia used Belarus as a staging ground to invade Ukraine. It's also using Belarus now as a storage facility for its tactical nuclear weapons. And the question now is, with Wagner forces apparently setting, setting up shop in Belarus, are they there to serve Russia's interest, or perhaps could Wagner be of use to Lukashenko? Okay, well, what do we know so far? Well, you know, Lukashenko yesterday said Wagner mercenaries can use a military training facility in Belarus if they want to set up camp. Um, so, but yet we don't really know what their long-term plans are. And uh, meanwhile, uh, a bit of mystery here, a plane believed to belong to Prigozhin, which arrived in Minsk yesterday, was actually seen flying back to Russia today. So while we've had Lukashenko say Prigozhin is in Belarus, we haven't actually seen Prigozhin himself. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you. How much do you tip? Where do you tip? Seems like everyone is talking about the spread of tipping, and it looks like customers might have reached a tipping point, as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. It is summer here in New York, and that means cold brew season. Could I get a cold brew, please? Yeah. Are you card or cash? A card. But this year, the cold brew is not warming my heart like it usually does, because my 16-ounce cold brew costs five twenty-five, And that is before this moment. Uh, you can just tap right there in a moment. Tap right there. The barista turns the payment tablet towards me, and there are my tip options, starting at a dollar. It's nearly a 20% tip. My cold brew is now $6.25. Tipping. It is costing U.S. consumers a lot, and we are all up in our feelings about it. Social media is filled with people who are outraged, shocked, or just plain confused about tipping. The girl just now at Subway giving off bad vibes because I didn't tip. So do we tip at Subway? Is that a thing? Dude, tipping culture is out of control. Look at this. It's asking me to tip on freaking car parts, dude. I picked up a snack at one of the airport convenience stores and I used a self-checkout and I was asked to tip at least 20%. I don't want to be the person that doesn't tip, but then who am I tipping? So how did we get here to the place where we're tipping 20% for airport Doritos? The pandemic hit us, right? 
Shubhranshu Singh is a professor at Johns Hopkins Business School. He says, during the pandemic, we started tipping people we didn't used to tip, and we started tipping way more than usual as a way to support essential workers at a time of crisis. The pandemic went away, says Singh, but the tip expectations did not. At the same time, the technology around how we pay has been changing. And all of that combined to create that dreaded tap here moment, a.k.a. the dreaded screen turn. Now the screen turns and that person who gave service to you is in front of you. And that is this social pressure. Social pressure. Sean Jung teaches hospitality administration at Boston University. He says this social pressure is a powerful and measurable economic force. The famous word for that is nudging. And if you have a system that kind of leads you to do something, it feels like a choice, but it isn't. Jung says the national average for tipping has been nudged up to almost 20 percent. And it's a lot higher in cities like New York, San Francisco and Boston. In my own opinion, I think it's getting a little out of hand. Out of hand, maybe, but people are making some serious money. Square, the company behind a lot of the electronic payment screens, gets a cut of each transaction, including tip. So more tips mean more money. And even though customers are complaining, businesses are not fighting it because of the third main driver of tipflation, the job market. A lot of people just didn't come back after the pandemic. Jung says restaurants, coffee shops, and other service businesses have been competing tooth and nail for workers, luring them in with better benefits, higher pay. At the same time, they are trying to keep their prices as low as possible. Tips are a way to increase worker pay without having to pay for it and raise prices. The wage they're receiving isn't sufficient enough. So everybody is using this very weird way to basically increase the wages while maintaining the same menu price. But it seems like tip exhaustion might be setting in. A survey from Bankrate found that two-thirds of customers now have a negative view of tipping. And this year, tips are down nearly 10 percent for restaurant servers. But even if tipflation starts to reverse course, don't expect to pay less. If tipping goes away, Jung says, companies will need to raise workers' wages. And they'll pay for that by raising prices or by adding fees, like a service fee, or like the 50-cent special milk fee I paid. What kind of milk? Just whole milk? Uh, can I get like an oat milk or something? Yeah, of course. Grand total for my cold brew, by the way, $7.53. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. So, Ari, I've got to say, it is hot outside. Try riding your bike in a suit. And we don't even have the worst of it. Just south of here in Washington, D.C., places in the U.S. are under heat advisories as temperatures break 100 degrees. Millions of people are facing dangerous, extreme heat. Yeah, I mean, we had some good tips on the show yesterday for staying safe and comfortable in heat like that, some of which may feel kind of obvious, like staying as cool as possible by hydrating and trying not to run around too much. Yeah, but there's one thing we didn't mention, which is Splooting. Splooting. That is a very silly word for a pretty cool strategy, something animals do more than humans. Walk around on a hot day and you actually might see a squirrel splooting. 
I think it's called splooting because that is kind of what it looks like. It's like if a squirrel just like splatted down on the pavement, all of its limbs are splayed. So it's kind of like spread eagles on the ground. That's animal physiologist Andrea Rummel. When humans are hot, sweating cools us down. But she says animals that can't sweat have to resort to other behaviors to cool off. The squirrels are trying to regulate their body temperatures by spreading out on a cool surface. Think of it like finding the cool part of the pillow when you're trying to fall asleep. And it's not just squirrels that sploot. Dogs, raccoons, bears, all kinds of animals will do it if they are overheating. Carlos Botero, an associate professor of biology at the University of Texas at Austin, says that while it might look kind of cute, it's actually a sign that they're under a lot of stress. The temperatures that we're experiencing right now are a little bit beyond the typical ability of this of this animals to withstand. And climate change is making things even harder for squirrels. These extreme conditions are becoming more and more common, so until somehow the physiology of squirrels gets adapted to the new normal, they will have to do this extra behavior to try to cool themselves off. The animal physiologist Rummel says splooting is enough to keep the squirrels cool for now, but... For every kind of thermoregulatory mechanism, there is a point at which it doesn't work anymore, and that depends on environmental temperature. So it's going to get harder and harder for squirrels to sploot effectively as temperatures rise. So if you're experiencing some of these extreme temperatures, keep your eye out for splooting squirrels, then head inside ASAP for some ice water and AC. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace starts at 6.30. There were ups and downs on Wall Street today. The Dow lost about a quarter of a percent. S&P lost a small fraction. The Nasdaq gained about a quarter of a percent. Beacon Hill lawmakers are considering requests to double the deposits on bottles. Supporters say a 10-cent deposit would encourage more recycling. The current 5-cent deposit was set 40 years ago when the bottle bill became law. The Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities and Energy is also reviewing the measure to add more types of containers that would require a deposit, including water bottles. The Container Recycling Institute last year found that Massachusetts has the lowest rate of people returning empty bottles and cans among the 10 states with bottle bills. And a report on home ownership finds that more black and Latino people in Massachusetts received mortgages in 2021 than at any time in the past three decades. The Partnership for Financial Equity says the most recent data available show the number of homes purchased by blacks and Latinos were at a record high. The researchers say there are still disparities, though, especially in wealthier communities. It's 619. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing Sense and Sensibility. Up next, the Tony Award-winning musical Jersey Boys. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. The Red Sox play game two of their three-game series with the Miami Marlins tonight. Caleb Ort pitches for Boston, Braxton Garrett for Miami. First pitch is at 7:10. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org/answers. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Clouds taking over for the night tonight. The rumble of thunder falling to the mid-60s overnight. Then for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds doing their little dance once again. Maybe some showers up around 80 degrees. 
Friday, mainly sunny skies at long last. This is WBUR at 621. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston, lacuchara.com. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healey has given drivers around Houston, Texas and Orlando, Florida, something she hopes will catch their eye. The administration has put up six digital billboards in each state. They carry a message of inclusiveness. The billboards read, Massachusetts for us all, and feature LGBTQ couples from the Bay State. Texas and Florida are actively restricting LGBTQ rights. The campaign costs $750,000. It includes billboards in New York and New England as well. Governor Healy is on an official trip to Ireland this week, a country that legalized homosexuality 30 years ago this month. She told us from Ireland this afternoon that the campaign is partly about attracting businesses to the Bay State. So we decided on this campaign, and we're proud of it. It's really about promoting Massachusetts as a state that's welcoming and and safe for everyone. Well, you say it's part of uh, creating a competitive business climate. The messages seem very individually oriented, and they don't seem to be reaching out to even LGBTQ-owned businesses. So that would lead one to think that there's also a bit of skewering going on here of two governors from right-wing persuasions who have made a point of skewering Massachusetts, in fact, for its democratic politics, especially on LGBTQ issues and on immigration. To what extent is that a part of it, kind of thumbing your nose? It's, no, it's it's not a part of that. And frankly, as somebody who spent a lot of time over many years advocating for LGBTQ plus equality and litigating cases around access to, to abortion and reproductive freedom, you know, I will tell you what this is about. There are a lot of people out there across this country who look to and rely on certain protections, the ability to to access contraception safely, the ability to access medication abortion, the ability to to live and go to work and go to school in a place free of discrimination and bigotry. And I think it's important that we as a state market that and be clear to other parts of the country that they can come to Massachusetts to grow a family, to start a business, to grow a business, and to live a life with you know the fullness of opportunity that right now isn't happening in some other parts of, of the country. I imagine there are other people who think that this is kind of a jab at Ron DeSantis of Florida and Greg Abbott, governor of Texas. I wonder how you are going to measure the return on investment in this. So it's costing the Commonwealth three quarters of a million dollars. How will you know if it's working beyond those who think, oh, it's a good thumbing of the nose? How are you going to measure it? Well, I think what we'll see, uh, hopefully, is more people moving to Massachusetts, students deciding to go to school in Massachusetts, employers looking to source talent in Massachusetts. I think you'll be able to, to tell by the movement and in migration into our state and frankly other states as well that provide access to health care, access to medication abortion, protection of voting rights, protection of civil rights, protections of LGBTQ plus equality. You know, my point is simply like, look, you know, if you are in a place that does not protect health care, that does not protect access to abortion, that does not protect civil rights, does not protect our LGBTQ plus community, come to Massachusetts because we've got you covered. 
I want to just bring this back to where you are right now in Ireland. Uh, and this month, as you well know, marks the 30th anniversary of Ireland decriminalizing homosexuality. As you talk with education leaders, as I believe you did today, as you talk with business leaders, government leaders, how much of a role does inclusiveness and pride play in your conversations? Well, I think it's a significant part of Ireland and, and where it's at today. Massachusetts and Ireland have been on parallel journeys. Uh, both have established marriage equality and strong protections for LGBTQ plus people. Both Massachusetts and Ireland have protected reproductive health care and access to abortion. And part of what the Irish political leaders and also business leaders that I met with talk about is how helpful it has been to economic development and growth for Ireland, that it is a place that is welcoming and that is supportive and certain rights and freedoms are protected. And, you know, that's why I think it's an exciting time, I think, for both Massachusetts and for Ireland. Not even detecting a bit of a brogue. <laughs> Not a wee a, bit. It would take a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Governor Moore Healy, thank you. Nice to talk to you. All right. Nice to talk to you, Lisa. Take care. Governor Healy speaking with us from Ireland this afternoon on the billboards Massachusetts is putting up, including in Florida and Texas, to encourage people to move here to the Bay State to take advantage of rights that are under threat in those two states. The Hollywood writers' strike is going into its third month, and there's a looming possibility that actors may also go on strike soon. Upcoming films and series are being delayed, if not outright canceled, and many productions have ground to a halt. To survey the shows and stories not coming soon to a screen near you, NPR's Mandalit Del Barco is with us. She's been covering the strike. Hey, Mandalit. Hey there. Which projects have been called off so far? Well, one of the most high-profile productions we will not be seeing is a new adaptation of the classic Fritz Lang sci-fi film Metropolis. Apple TV Plus reportedly scrapped director Sam Ismail's passion project. It was in the works for many years, and it was actually... Uh, about to begin filming this summer. Um, you know, until the writer's strike ends, there will not be shooting for uh, the next season of Paramount Plus's Yellowstone prequel, 1923, with Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. And production of the Batman spinoff series, The Penguin, has been halted, even though Max already released a teaser trailer. The world ain't built for guys like us. That's why we gotta take whatever we decide is ours. Joining the Penguin in delaying production are the next seasons of Severance, Abbott Elementary, Euphoria, and The Last of Us, the sixth season of Cobra Kai, and the final season of Stranger Things. I guess right now the world really ain't built for guys like them. Uh, (laughs) But there are still some new shows and films coming out this summer, so there's an inventory. How long is the pipeline going to last? Well, you know, there's no telling how long the writer's strike will go on. Some are talking about ending maybe in September. Um, But, you know, Ari, another factor to keep in mind is that the actors are possibly going to be going on strike, even though the leaders of their union sag after assured them negotiations are going well. This week, more than 300 actors, including Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, Quinta Brunson, they all signed a letter saying they're ready to strike, if that's what it takes to secure the best deal possible. Their current contract with the studios and streamers ends on Friday. So in terms of any new or upcoming shows, nothing's going to be happening before the actors and the writers' demands get resolved one way or another. But, you know, I should add that many of NPR's employees are members of SAG-AFTRA, even though we're covered by a different contract. And uh, so if there is a strike, uh, we won't be on strike. 
There are big marketing events and an award season coming up, Comic-Con, the Emmys. How are things like that being affected? Well, let's start with Comic-Con, Comic-Con International in San Diego. Usually every year the the Hollywood studios host big, splashy, filled-to-capacity presentations of their upcoming movies. But this year, Marvel and Disney are not making any presentations at Comic-Con. Neither are Netflix, Sony, or Universal. We'll have to see what, if anything, Warner Brothers does. And as for the Emmy Awards, those nominations are going to be announced next week, and they were set to air in September, but they could be delayed for months, and the organization Organizers are reportedly discussing various contingency plans if the writer's strike isn't resolved this summer. And the impact here goes beyond big Hollywood events and sets, right? That's right. Well, you know, I, I heard from Film LA, which handles permits for film shoots on city streets and other locations, and they say there were only two scripted TV series shooting or filming in Los Angeles this week. Normally at this time of the year, you, there would be dozens of TV projects and uh, production. And here in LA, the shutdown impacts so many people, all the film crews and every business that relies on the Hollywood economy. According to the Milken Institute, the 2008 writer's strike, which lasted 100 days, cost the LA economy more than $2 billion. That is NPR's Mandalit Del Barco. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. For more information, visit bu.edu met.